Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Matt Deacon. On the show today, we've got all the announcements from the Edinburgh TV Festival, including some of the headliners. Uh, TV critic Scotty Bryan shares his much-watched shows from British broadcasters and global streamers. Plus, shakeups in the newsroom. The BBC and Bloomberg announce new hires. And in the media quiz, we find out which media companies have revealed trailblazing changes to the industry. That's all coming up on this edition of the Media Podcast. So in the news this week, Brazil steps up the search for missing journalist Dom Phillips and his colleague. Editors around the world have expressed fears for their safety after they were last seen on Sunday morning traveling down the Amazon River. At Spotify's Investor Day, CEO Daniel Ek shared that the streaming platform is making a loss on podcasts, but they're going to be trying their luck with audiobooks. Staying in the tech world, Twitter has announced it will comply with Elon Musk's data demands, uh, reportedly giving access to half a billion daily tweets after the tech entrepreneur threatened to walk away from his $44 billion deal. Uh, Good luck sifting through all of those, Elon. Uh, And finally, one of the great innovators of British television news, Sir David Nicholas, passed away. His legacy included the use of new technologies when covering election nights uh, and also looking after live events such as the Apollo 11 space mission. But on today's show, I've got two media analysts here with me to tackle the media stories that matter. So first up is Karen Robinson, host of Democratically 2020 podcast. I'm sure that's still going, isn't it, Karen? And Edelman's planning director, or, or is it on pause? Yeah, I've put it on pause until the next uh, until the next major election cycle, but I'm sure I'll pick it up again when the world demands it. You're not going to do midterms? Right now I'm busy writing a novel, so that's taking up all of my spare non-work-based energy. Well, fair enough. But speaking of politics, um, obviously the, the big thing that's about to hit the headlines uh, in America this week is the January 6th committee, which was on Thursday night. So if you're listening to this was a day ago or a couple of days ago. Are you going to be tuning in? I will absolutely be tuning in. It should be really interesting. I know the committee's been doing a lot of work behind the scenes. They seem to have acquired a lot of evidence, even just based on what's been reported in the papers. Much more evidence indicating not just that the riot was badly handled at the time, but also suggesting that it was organised with conspiratorial links at the highest level. I think it should be a fascinating TV drama and also a very concerning testament to, to where America is 
place. Um, I'd like to think that these things are no longer things we need to worry about, but actually the direction of American politics in the past year and a bit has not moved in the direction of making Trump's influence less. In fact, I think we're very concerned about what the next election is going to be. So it's it's good to start having these conversations very honestly about what happened. I mean, also, it's going to be quite the media spectacle, isn't it? They've got a a TV producer that's working on it. The committee are very keen to basically create a primetime TV show to make sure America hears this. Absolutely. They're doing a really thoughtful job about how they're going to do storytelling around it. And compared to previous committee hearings and so forth, where you had kind of this weird mashup of equal numbers of Republicans and Democrats, and Republicans would just try and distract and just change the subject and kind of throw accusations back at the accusers. In this committee, it's a bipartisan committee, but the two Republicans on the committee are not supporters of the riot, which seems like a good place to start. So they've been really thoughtful about how they to do storytelling around it. So I think it should be really interesting to see how they roll it out, because I think they are seeing this as their chance to let the American public really see clearly what happened. And also with me is Goldwaller's Managing Director, Faraz Osman. Faraz, the Edinburgh TV Festival lineup has been announced this week. Anything on there that you're looking forward to? Yeah, good to see you, Matt. It's already looking like a killer lineup. I think that they are getting a roster of really contemporary voices that are very much in the public eye at the moment. So there's Brian Cox, who everyone will know as the, the, the TV industry's darling drama succession. He is uh, plays the... I don't, am I allowed to say that he is the Rupert Murdoch of that drama? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so he's the patriarch in the succession family. And I think everybody who's anybody in the TV industry has that as their favourite show right now. Also Kit Connor from Heartstopper, which is this incredible teen drama that's on Netflix at the moment. There's been a real breakout hit. He's going to appear. And then what would arguably be the most watched and loved entertainment moment of last year, which was um, Rose Ailing at Ellis, who was the winner of Strictly Come Dancing last year, will be appearing to talk about her experiences in the industry that's her first deaf contestant and strictly and is a champion of diversity and accessibility within the industry so it's, it's already looking like a really killer lineup i might be wrong i don't think that they've announced the actual mctaggart yet which is mm. the thing that everyone kind of looks out for so i think that's still the one that they're keeping their powder dry on yet so the, the bets are still on about who that's going to be because it's always the the real blue chip moment and normally they make TV executives do a TV format. They've done Big Brother in the past and Strictly. What are they doing this year? Have they announced that yet? Yes, of what I understand, it's going to be a repair shop this year, the beloved daytime show on the BBC. Actually, I don't even know if it's daytime anymore. I think it's been upgraded to early peak. So that's going to be their, their version of the Edinburgh opener, which is always going to be lots of fun. I'm not sure if they've announced who's going to be doing it on stage, as it usually is, but it's, I think it's going to be a lot of fun to see what execs require something fixed in their house the french villas and their yachts in in saint-tropez i mean you've been on the uh, edinburgh tv festival committee is it hard to get execs to get involved or do they just love showing off well i I was on the committee last year when everything was still remote when we were living in that weird world where things like conferences were done on zoom so it was a little bit different back then but i think that edinburgh is so great for letting your hair down so i think that it's one of those things that people get to see each other without having to feel like it's bumping into each other in the reception of Broadcasting House or, you know, the Leeds office at Channel 4. And and so everyone is there to actually reconnect with the spirit and joy of what it means to be a TV programme maker. So I think that most people are game for a bit of a laugh because they don't take themselves too seriously in that space. 
But obviously, it is the opening of the festival, usually an event like that. And then beyond that, it then comes into the, the serious news of announcing new programs and, and putting out new briefs. So I, I think that a lot of execs are always clamouring to get a seat on, on a panel. And if it means that they have to make a bit of a fool of themselves, I'm sure that most of them will be game for a laugh. Well, I'm sure a topic that will be discussed at the um, Edinburgh TV Festival this year is the government's media machinations. And this week, Culture Minister uh, Julia Lopez addressed the looming changes to British Broadcasting at the Communications and Digital Committee. Karen, what were the top takeaways from this week? Well, I think she was trying to assure people that the fix is not necessarily in, that the licence fee uh, for the BBC is not essentially doomed, whilst being honest about the fact that Nadia Andorra's the Cultural Secretary seems to have it in for that particular funding model. She praised a couple of things. She praised the BBC for its Ukraine coverage and for its coverage of the Jubilee. Those of us who are of a slightly more cynical mind might say she's singling out two areas of coverage where the government happens to agree with the importance of the topics that the BBC is covering. I was particularly struck by her comment that the BBC should not be trying to be all things to all people because I I do think the BBC does try to be all things to all people but I think that kind of is probably not a bad idea actually given that you know they are under their current license model so the suggestion that they might scale back and allow the private sector to do much of what they do now seemed interesting to me. For us, last week we had John Whittingdale on the show uh, and he echoed uh, Lopez's comments about the privatisation and that it isn't a culture war, but just the way that Channel 4 was structured is a future impediment to it being a successful business. What's your response to the government's comments as an indie producer? It was actually a really good interview. And, you know, after you've listened to this, you should go and check that out if you haven't heard it already. <laughs> so, so good on you, Matt. I, I think John is actually quite nuanced in his thinking sometimes. And, and as an industry, we were all quite concerned because of the way he was speaking felt like it was signalling moves in directions that actually resulted to where we are right now. It is really frustrating because I think that there is always a value to have a legitimate debate about how public service broadcasting is both paid for and delivered to the public in this country. And we shouldn't shy away from that debate and it should continue to happen. Unfortunately, this continues to be seen as a foregone conclusion. So even the comments that were made in the Select Committee with Nadine Doris was, you know, she had already made her mind up. She has come out on record saying that the licence fee is done. She has also ignored the consultation and made her own views and minds up about Channel 4. I think that the the frustration is is that it's not a debate, it's an opinion, and it's an opinion that is being pushed through very quickly because it's looking like there's a looming ticking time clock on what legislation this government can put through in, in whatever time they have left, if you want to look at the opinion polls and the drama that's happening on the front benches. So it's a frustrating thing because I think it would be really valuable to have a debate. I actually personally don't think that the licence fee, as it's currently collected and valued, is, is the right way of doing things. I think that there is some innovation that can be done around that. My preference is that I think it should be tied to uh, a broadband bill so that it is paid for by and collected by an existing utility that comes into the house as opposed to being separated and therefore becoming a bit of a political football. But, but none of those things are really on the table because this is about people having conversations about what the BBC does and what Channel 4 does. And those things are always in flux because it is representing uh, a culture and a community of the UK. And and that is always going to be up for debate. As an indie and as a business, this is really, really troublesome because we are a small indie and any stability or instability in this case presents real challenges to us growing as a business. Like I simply don't know if it is worth us developing ideas for Channel 4 right now, because if they do create a significant in-house production company, 
company, it is going to be pointless me trying to win work in that space. So should I be using my limited resources in developing and pitching ideas in that space or should I be looking elsewhere? And I think that the government has been really lax in actually understanding the challenges that we have as small businesses and small companies and have quite clearly ignored our feelings on it and and gone ahead with this privatisation idea without a real understanding of what the consequences might be. Karen, just picking up something Farah said there, obviously a bit of government instability uh, this week and suddenly there's a lot of rebels, even though they've got an 80-seat majority, a lot of people are obviously unhappy uh, with the Prime Minister. Do you think that could affect some of the more uh, troublesome bills, including the the Channel 4 privatisation? Very possibly. I was really struck that one of the very strong letters that was sent by a Conservative MP stating his opposition to Boris Johnson specifically called out the Channel 4 privatisation in really strong language, saying that it was it was a, a divisive issue that was totally unnecessary to take up at a time when the country is in so many difficulties. And that really struck me as a, an interesting example of Conservatives themselves thinking that the Channel 4 privatisation is not politically in their best interest whether or not they think it's a good idea on its merits. So I think it is uh, the Channel 4 privatisation, the the BBC in particular, are areas where I think there was always some weakness in the government's support from their own side. It isn't something that's necessarily a Tory party policy that's unilaterally embraced, particularly the Channel 4 piece. So I think they might find themselves struggling a little bit to push through a policy that is wildly unpopular with the public and not even necessarily well supported by their own now divided party. And I guess we'll see back over the Atlantic, over at CNN, their new boss, Chris Licht, who replaced Jeff Zucker, has laid out some plans to make the broadcaster less partisan. And actually, this is picking up on, on some of the planning, I think, before uh, Chris Licht joined. Karen, what's the, the story here and who is Chris Licht? So the story here is that, you know, CNN's new boss is going to try and make CNN less partisan personality-led. Now, of course, CNN during the Trump administration in particular became a very combative network, and that did really well for them on the ratings. He said that he's going to now try and not necessarily get rid of commentators like Jeff Acosta or Brian Stelter, but see if they can adapt their style to be slightly more news-oriented and perhaps perceived as less, less partisan oriented. I think it's quite interesting because there's a long-standing debate in American um, media about whether left-leaning or at least kind of oppositional to right-leaning media is or is not a good media model. Obviously, Fox News on the right has been very commercially successful, and there hasn't really been a consistent breakaway left-leaning media entity that has been able to run away with things. Having said that, CNN's done very well out of politics when it was very divided. So I'm curious to see whether this is more of an ideological or more of a commercial judgment. For us, I, mean, I was looking at some of the, the ratings and, and number one, Fox News is by far and away uh, the biggest news channel. I mean, in effect, it's challenging some of the broadcast networks uh, in the US. And MSNBC, which is a, a bit more lefty, is sort of a, a number two and CNN's primetime lineup hasn't quite been filled out yet. It is having some trouble. Do you think that's the right take for them to try and reposition? As a Brit who doesn't watch 
American news programming to even understand how this is a debate because it's so wild the way that they do news in America and in other countries as well. I mean, India have, have actually picked up a lot of this shouting match, having six boxes of people all slagging each other off to kind of uh, to see who can get the most amount of attention. It's just a very, very different way of doing news that we are used to here because of our impartiality rules. Fox News is an entertainment show. You know, they have weaponized opinion programming. It's not really news. But I think that this is interesting because I think CNN are looking a bit more internationally to kind of see how they can make themselves feel like they are more going up against what BBC News is doing and becoming like merging BBC World News and BBC News News Channel together. So it is something that works for the internet age and works globally. I do think that it's looking like we're going to have a very combative election cycle again. There's lots of rumours that Trump is going to announce in the next few weeks for the presidency and obviously we've got the midterms coming up right now. CNN did do very well in that period because I think a lot of people were tuning in to actually have that sense of what is going on and and have a bit of criticism and, and not just kind of put it out there but actually kind of objectively debate it in a way that was representative of I guess the democratic viewpoint and I, I think that all of those things put together means that brushing off the edges of CNN may do more harm than good it, it kind of really depends on what they want it to be but CNN plus has failed dramatically you know on demand news service that was a subscriber-based thing that kind of launched for what three weeks before before um, it was shut down for this new idea of what the CNN brand should be. And I think that there's going to be a lot of challenges before they can figure out what the next version of it is uh, is going to look like. Well, here in the UK, um, a bit of movement in UK newsrooms as the BBC's named Ros Atkins as analysis editor. Karen, what is that? Or is that a sort of reward for all of his explainers? Yeah, that was exactly the question that I had, whether basically they've created a title to match the role that they think he fills. Um, Ros Atkins is obviously has been a very successful broadcaster, but also crucially has developed a format, a sort of analytical style, which I think is extremely valuable as a contribution to the media landscape, a sort of explainer style where he takes an issue and he goes through the full story with evidence demonstrating what's happened. So-and-so said this, and then so-and-so said this in in a sort of timely fashion. And I think that's for especially people who are not consistent news consumers. I think it's a really, really good model and a very useful model from a social media point of view for explaining what has happened, what are the major developments in an ongoing story. Obviously, his videos have been going viral quite regularly, and it's a really lovely example of using news media in the way that it's meant to be used to inform and explain, but also giving people more backstory, more explanation, not assuming as much context as I feel like news broadcasts often do. I am interpreting this as a reward for the good work that he's done. And if it is indeed them signaling that they would like to move more in the direction of that type of analytical coverage, then I think it's very much to be welcomed. I think he's definitely a favourite at the moment and is is popping up uh, more and more. Definitely saw him sort of pop up on the breaking news around Boris this week. Uh, Faraz, what do you think about Roz's moves? Roz is a brilliant journalist and I think that he's done some incredible work, particularly on moving BBC News online. Marcus Ryder put out a really interesting tweet earlier today which is that you know Ross has just had a very um, sorry Mr Atkins I shouldn't just call him Ross I don't know the guy but he's had a very uh, 
decent promotion. Chris Mason has just become political editor. We've had a new editor of Newsnight, Stuart McLean. There's a lot of familiarity around all of these names in that they are all white men. Again, I don't think that these people should be in any way criticised for the excellent journalism that they do. But at a time when we are having lots of conversations around diversity in the media, it is striking that more newsroom big appointments seem to be going to familiar faces and people that all look like each other. And I think that we should be asking some questions about where are we going to see the next female news execs and news anchors and those of colour as well, because at the moment, it's looking like it's becoming a worrying trend. So for us, some uh, more changes uh, with Allegra Stratton, famous for the Partygate scandal and being the only person that particularly resigned. Uh, She's popped up at Bloomberg as a UK contributing editor. Is she a good hire for Bloomberg? I think so. I think Allegra Stratton actually was brought in to, to do this role, which was going to be very interesting. It was that kind of whole West Wing press secretary role that, that Boris wanted to bring in for those daily briefings that never actually happened. So she clearly has journalism through her veins. I think it's going to be interesting to see how tarnished she's going to be from pinning her stripes to the Tory party and, and Boris's government in particular. But I don't think it's a, a bad move for her. And I think it'd be good to see what journalism she comes out with and if she's going to be free to talk about some of the things that she's seen and experienced. Because I think actually having that insider voice and having uh, a real understanding of what goes on in the machinations of, of Downing Street and beyond can be super useful because, quite frankly, at the moment, it just feels like chaos. And any insight that we can get into how it really works is, is useful. Faraz and Karen are going to stick around uh, and we've got more media news in a bit. Uh, First, though, have you noticed that there's a flurry of TV programming hitting our screens this summer? Well, I spoke to what I'm calling our media podcast TV correspondent, Scott Bryan, to find out all the things that we can't miss this season. We chat Borgen and lots of other upcoming premieres. Oh, my word, Borgen. I mean, it's not been on TV for a decade. Of course, this is the Danish drama that was huge on BBC4 when it first debuted because it looks into the minutiae of Danish politics and it manages to blend political intrigue and and general political crisis with kind of a home domestic, quite sometimes soapy feel. And it also, as a bit of a politics geek, because I did a politics degree and then just (laughs) never decided to pursue it in anything degree with politics wise, I'm still quite fascinated by the, the subjects because you learn a lot about how other countries work and do their own thing. And particularly with Danish politics, you never really win an outright majority. There are so many smaller parties that there's always going to be a coalition, pretty much whoever uh, wins, whoever becomes in political power. So as a result, you essentially to win um, a majority. So you have to team up with sides that are probably completely politically opposite than you are to then try to go and get something through. So loads of negotiation, lots of backstabbing, lots of deals being done with people who you really hate serving in your cabinet. And I think it captures that energy well. Now, what is interesting about this, this new series is called Borgen Power and Glory. With two things about it, I think, what makes it interesting. The first is, I mean, this series has just debuted. I've only been able to see a very little bit, but it's got a different tone than I think the first three series. The first three series were very much more in a hopeful time. I think with just democracy and politics in general, it was West Wing E. It still had a lot of a cynicism. It had a lot of dark sides um, to it, but it was generally this idea of, 
you know, have faith in politics and politics will be able to to do good things for our society. And of course, I think the last 10 years, people have gotten a lot more cynical of, of, of what really happens in the corridors of power. And I think this reflects the mood slightly more cynical than what it was before, but not in a way to make you sad. I think more in a way of just being a bit more realistic. And if it felt tonally a bit odd, you wouldn't really get absorbed in it in the same way. And the second thing that's interesting is that this has been a Netflix series. So, of course, it has been shown in Denmark on their TV channel over there, but Netflix have picked up international distribution. And, of course, this comes at a really interesting time when BBC4, just in the last few weeks, is you know being announced that it's going to be shifting online. Of course, that raises questions of exactly what are they going to shift online. It's mostly Top of the Pops repeats anyway. <laughs> but, you know, this used to be the place for Scandé Noir drama, but it also got a lot of people talking you know across the whole country for the first time and having it in netflix in a box is a great thing because lots of us subscribe to netflix but i do wonder whether people are going to realize that borgen is actually back again yes it's hard to see it being a kind of international squid game isn't it but um (laughs) but after after kind of being off air for quite a long time quite a lot of the people in borgen the Danish actors started popping up in other things. The you know, actors appeared in Game of Thrones. Um, One of them hosted uh, Eurovision. One yes, day. yes, yes, which was such a delight um, to see. It was like two different parts of my mind merging into one. It was beautiful. So obviously, Begita is back, the main star, and are most of the other characters back for this season too. There are some. I mean, I think the idea is she's no longer the prime minister. Uh, she's now moved to become a part of a, a different political party. But also it's not set necessarily within Denmark. It looks at Greenland because this new series looks at the balance uh, between climate and the needs of climate protection, but also the needs of making a lot of money from from oil exploration. So it, so it kind of has this idea of like, do you go after the economic short term needs or do you go for the, the long term, very important, obviously, but like less financially sexy sort of climate route. So, um, yes, it'll be familiar to those who have seen it. Of course, she's moved on in regards to her relationships. So, yes, there will be some cameos. Okay, so there's a new Sky series called Midwich Cuckoos, which is based on the John Wyndham novel. Is that worth a watch? Yes, I mean, yet again, this has only literally been out for two and a half seconds. <laughs> so it's like so much on my radar. I saw a snippet of it. They did a big Sky Originals upfront quite recently. And this was an indication where Sky is going to go in the future. Of course, competition is so fierce. And uh, they've announced a doubling of their TV spend, but also their film original spend. Now, we all know the age old way of just spending more money doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be any good or any people are going to watch it. But you also wonder what the long term future will be for their originals particularly that there's a lot of questions about whether they're going to renew their hbo deal whether hbo is still going to be a partner with sky whether they're going to do their own thing so what they're doing now is i thinking spending a lot more money doing these quite high like level of production this drama the midwich cuckoos which of course has been depicted before in a film the village of the damned but this is going to be in a starring keely Hawes. it feels quite bbc-ish but it also taps into a bit like the drama, The Salisbury Poisonings. Of course, this was you know, more realistic, The Salisbury Poisonings, wasn't it? But it was in terms of the fact that in the first episode, at least, you see a lot of people wearing those kind of nuclear protective clothing that they see. So it feels like it's tapping into the concerns that people have right now about you know, security, about their safety, about community. And I think this is Sky making an ambitious step towards doing dramas that are very, very British. Now, of course, they have also got the drama coming soon, which 
I mean, I'm not sure whether I'm looking forward to it. I'm just intrigued by it. It's that Kenneth Branagh drama where you may have seen him looking like Boris and it mm. tries to be a drama that captures the early days of the first wave of the pandemic and how the government responded to it. I think, I mean, A, you wonder you know, whether it would be able to accurately depict what has happened when we haven't had an inquiry really yet of what has actually happened about the pandemic, but also whether people want to have a drama about the last two years, specifically at the top levels of government. So soon after something that's been so terrible so this is i think you know an indication where sky are going to go next and they're really emphasizing that they're in this for the long haul that was scott bryan uh, if you're interested in hearing even more tv reviews and recommendations just head to patreon.com slash media pod where you can get a longer listen because all patreon subscribers get access to all of our bonus interview material uh, with our media podcast guests each week plus and uh, more importantly it helps us support the making of the show just head to patreon.com slash media pod and we'll be back after this Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. And on with the show, I've still got Karen and Faraz here to cover news in brief. And still in the world of telly, Roku stocks jumped this week after reports of a potential takeover by Netflix. We don't get a lot of news about Roku here, but it is massive in America, isn't it, as a uh, device slash streaming service. Isn't that right, Karen? Yes, Roku is a large streaming service, um, obviously not in the Netflix realm, but it has a different model. It's a streaming stick, so it's much more accessible. It also has a lot of its programmers advertiser funded. And I think that might be what Netflix has its eye on as it starts to open itself up to the idea of advertising funded content. So although Roku is not necessarily huge here, it is quite popular in the US and offers an alternative business model that Netflix might be looking to as they've started to struggle themselves with their growth. Faraz, why do you think Netflix might want to grab Roku? Well, well, I think the hardware thing is is interesting, but it's difficult to know whether or not that's actually the story. I mean, 
Anthony Wood, who's the CEO of Roku, has been on record as saying that they see themselves as an ad business um, rather than a hardware business. And as Karen says, they have done some interesting work in selling space that they create because effectively it's part of that battle for HDMI 1, you know, the, the idea that when you turn your TV on, what's the first screen that you see? Roku has got a really big footprint into that space and it might be something that, that Netflix is interested in. There are kind of conversations about Netflix getting into the ad business and what that ends up looking like, as well as them diversifying into doing some short form games and short form content and looking at making Netflix a brand bigger than just premium TV programming. But I'm not entirely convinced that Netflix as a hardware play is a good one, because I think that Netflix's success is very much based on the fact that you can get it in any way, in, in any place. I cannot see Netflix customers going into stores and kind of going, well, I'm going to pick up a Netflix streaming stick now. So I think that this may be an ad play and and kind of looking at that, this is genuine and kind of actually happens. But if it is a hardware play, I, I would be sceptically interested to see where it goes. Karen Frass is right, isn't he? I mean, Roku have been quite involved in fast channels, these sort of, these ad-supported streaming services. They take uh, a bit of a cut or they insert their own ads into some of their partner programming. Is this to supercharge Netflix's ad ambitions? Yeah, I mean, my suspicion is that that's probably what Netflix is looking to more than the hardware, as I said before. I'm curious. I'm not. I, I'm, a, I'm a cautious skeptic whether Netflix's move into advertising is going to ultimately be good for their business. I think there's a real danger. They talk about consumer choice. They talk about giving people the option between cheaper ad-funded options and their subscriber model. I think they might be tampering with magic a little bit. I think the point that people you know, get an excellent user experience at Netflix and they, you know, must be willing to pay the cost of that has been a real part of why their business has been successful so far. It's not surprising that Netflix viewership might have gone down as the pandemic has come to an end and people are able to leave their houses now. I don't think it's something they should panic over too much. And I, I do wonder if another advertiser supported platform is really what we need and whether Netflix shouldn't be true to who they are and what's been making them successful so far. Bear in mind, I'm probably wrong about these things. And, 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 you know, years from now, I might come back and say, well, obviously, the smartest thing Netflix did was its move to advertising. But we'll see how it goes. I think that the, the truth is, when it comes to Netflix, they've got two challenges. One is discovery. And, and the other one is creating habits around brands. And I think that's what Disney are doing incredibly well, yeah. almost too well. If you look at the amount of things that they're putting out around Star Wars at the moment, it feels like there's a new Star Wars TV program brand every couple of weeks. They're all very good. But you know, you wonder if they're kind of, as they've done with with Marvel if they're going to kind of really shake that money tree until it kind of well I don't know where I'm going with this uh, with this metaphor um, <laughs> they're doing a lot around kind of extending brands as far as they will go and, and Disney continue to be absolutely brilliant at that Netflix actually surprisingly have quite a limited amount of successful brands beyond yep. Stranger Things and Bridgerton and I think that's where we have one of their challenges this whole thing that they become famous for of dropping everything all at once I think it's coming back to bite them now because people are getting a bit more savvy to subscribing for a month binging the whole of Stranger Things and then switching off Netflix until it comes back the next year and and all of those things I think that is going to be a challenge for them but the real interesting part for me around all of these conversations is what TikTok have done where TikTok is a brilliant app where you open it and it starts playing you content there's no choice involved there's no screens and menus that you have to kind of dive into to find something to watch 
it thinks it knows what you want to watch and it starts playing it to you. And I think that's where Netflix are going to start innovating, as well as all these other brands, including Facebook. Because the sooner we can get into a space where you are being given something based on AI and you can just literally lean back into what looks actually suspiciously like a traditional linear programming block is going to be where I think consumers want it to go and hopefully where the success of these streaming services will be. Well, TikTok is very short form, but you do end up spending a TV amount of time watching it whenever I drop into the app. Now, of course, the format that all media and streaming companies are vying for is that of the media quiz. And this week, the uh, quiz is entitled Media Trailblazers. I'm going to describe three stories where media companies are making creative leaps. Buzz in if you can name the company. Uh, So Karen, you'll say... Karen. And Faraz, you'll say... Oh, I've got a treat for this. Do you want to? I found something. <laughs> Age that I've got this. You're gonna. This is this is gonna be worth it. I promise you. Can you hear that? Oh, that we, I vaguely heard that. There we go. That's, uh, that's Peter Dixon, and I've never had a reason to use it, but now I do with the media quiz. So I'm gonna be buzzing in with Peter Dixon. Sorry, Karen, but like I'm, I'm going premium a bit left on this. Out now. You'll have to just do your best impression, uh, Karen, and we won't mention to Peter the the licensing. Right, here we go. Uh, So uh, question number one, I'm looking for the media company that's been a trailblazer. So question number one, who has debuted their first Muslim superhero? Karen. Karen, who is it? I'm going to say Marvel slash Disney. Correct. Ms. Marvel. As a comics nerd, it's delightful to see her. She's a great character. Uh, do you think it's going to be a success for them? I, I guess time will tell, but I would think so. I think, you know, Disney knows how to build a brand, as uh, Faraz was just saying. And I think Disney streaming series have been great so far. Ms. Marvel in the comic iteration was a fantastic character. He did pretty well. And I think, you know, there's plenty of people who will tune in just for the Marvel aspect and then maybe an additional audience who will be keen to see some diversity. So why not? Faraz, do you think Aman Vellani is going to be the next super, uh, superstar superhero? Well, there's already talks about her joining one of the films. I think she's going to be in the next Captain Marvel film. And so she is going to get a Hollywood um, debut as well. I I can't be more excited about this for for a number of reasons. Obviously, having kind of Muslim representation in a really positive way on the most mainstream platform is is super exciting in itself. But what I think is really interesting about this is that they may have actually tipped into a slightly older age bracket now, but this is going to be one of the first series of Marvel that is going to be aimed at younger kids. So they are looking to bring in a whole new generation of, of Marvel lovers. So I think that the hope was is that they were going to get a PG rating as part of this. I think it might have just slipped into uh, a 12A rating or whatever it is in the US. But this is very much being pitched as a family drama series to watch as opposed to a kind of gritty you know, war-led thing that they've been doing with with previous Marvel iterations. Absolutely. And the kind of early reviews that I've seen make it feel tonally a little bit closer to something like Never Have I Ever, which was a sort of teen sitcom, I think, on Netflix, featuring an Indian teenage girl, which I thought was delightful. So I'll take more of that type of thing any day. Okay, question number two. Who is trying out a new creative release model with a star-lined Formula One movie? Ah, this is... And sorry, is that me? Was yes, that me? yes. <laughs> so this is Apple TV, which are doing some mad bonkers deal around a, a currently unknown Formula One story with Brad Pitt and Joseph Kosiniski. But he's obviously the, the kind of golden child at the moment because he's the director behind Top Gun Maverick, which I think had the highest opening for a film of all time ever with, with Top Gun Maverick. And my understanding is that actually it's the highest 
grossing opening weekend for a Tom Cruise film of all time, which in itself is bonkers. But they brought all of those people together, as well as Lewis Hamilton, to do this mad Formula One show. And obviously off the back of the success of Netflix's Drive to Survive, this is going to be a pretty big deal. What's interesting about this is that it's going to be getting a film release as as well as a Apple TV release and, and everyone's getting paid like a million times over in a million different ways. So so there's going to be a lot of money made in this. Karen, are we going to see more kind of creative release strategies involving the pictures uh, from the streamers, do you think? I assume yes. Why not? All bets are off. And since we no longer necessarily need to rush to the cinemas to see big new feature releases, I think there's lots of room for experimentation right now. I personally don't love the whole model of throwing tons of money at singular, huge tentpole things like this, rather than experimenting and spreading a bit more widely. But I mean, Apple's got the money, so why shouldn't they try it? Absolutely. And finally, uh, question number three, which publisher has made a foray into podcasting? Karen. Karen. (laughs) (laughs) I think we just had Karen there. Karen, who is it? It's Haymarket. Yes. What have they been up to? Uh, They've bought the British Podcast Awards. Is that right? That is correct. They've bought the British Podcast Awards, founded by a producer of the media podcast, Matt Hill, and the presenter of the media podcast, uh, (laughs) Matt Deacon. Yes, they bought um, bought our business uh, office last week. It's the British Podcast Awards, Irish Podcast Awards, Australian Podcast Awards, all ones that we do, uh, as well as a share of a conference we run called Podcast Day 24. So Faraz, why have uh, Haymarket got into podcasting, do you think? Why are you asking me? Like, this is your deal. Can I ask you? Matt, why have Haymarket got into podcasting, do you think? I mean, you've literally got the terms of uh, the deal in front of you, haven't you? Haymarket's quite an interesting business. So they're the publishers of things like Campaign. They're an international business. They work in, in lots of different territories. Obviously, podcasting is very hot. And they're also a very successful events company. They run 50 award ceremonies a year. So they're definitely in the awards world. And obviously, I can't talk too much about their plans. That's definitely for them to say. And I think from our point of view, we run, we sort of set up the podcast awards uh, six years ago as just a fun thing to do. And it has turned into a monster as the sector has really grown. If you want to do more things in more places, we definitely want to represent all podcasters from little ones to big ones. And when we were looking at what we want to do sort of this year moving forward, um, actually partnering up with a, a big firm who've got a lot of ambition and some cash in the bank is a good thing. I think, I think what, kind of what's interesting about any of these sorts of deals and uh, if people listening have been involved with them, sadly, people don't come along and write you a massive check and then you disappear into the sunset. So me and Matt will definitely be involved for the next few years and our success will come from their success. So I'll leave it at that. Well, I, I will say, I think that that's really good news, actually. And, and you know, obviously, this without this kind of sounding like a bit of a media podcast loving, it is a great <laughs> show and it's a great event as well. So I think that hearing that both of you are still involved, I think is really important and hopefully long may it continue because I think it is genuinely loved by the industry. And every time I've been to the awards, it, it's been a lot of fun. So I can't wait to see what's going to happen next with it. Thank you. And we're definitely keen to keep that, as are they. Um, I think well done to Karen, I think you won the, the quiz there. It sounds like you won, Matt. Matt, I assume you'll be cutting me a thick check for my victory from your newfound wealth and, and riches and fame. <laughs> uh, well, I was just going to say, as you've won the quiz, I'm going to send you all my old British Podcast Awards merch that's uh, in my house. You can have that. Um, you know what? Genuinely, please do. I love merch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's our show for today. My thanks to Karen and Faraz. Karen, how can people kind of keep up with uh, what you're up to? 
Oh, just follow me on Twitter. That's where I mostly witter on. It's Karen Jr. K A R I N J R on Twitter. And anything else you need to know will be on there. And you're saying that you're a big fan of Marvel. Any TV shows uh, or anything you've been consuming that you'd like to encourage other people to, to consume? Oh, gosh, what an excellent question for which I'm totally unprepared. Let me think. Uh, <laughs> well, what, what do you think, Faraz, is there anything you've been uh, watching that you think everyone should get on to? I'm a little bit late on this because it's been on my watch list for a while, but we're currently watching The Dropout, which is amazing. And actually a really interesting story because it started off as a mm. and became a podcast for ABC and is now a Disney Plus drama and it's actually really, really compelling. I'm just going to say the word Theranos. Um, and Elizabeth Holmes. If that means nothing to you, go straight to your Disney Plus app. And, and so I feel like I'm shilling Disney Plus in this episode today. I'm really not. But like, go and go and see that. And actually, while I'm on that note, the Obi Wan Kenobi series is brilliant as well, and it's it's a lot of fun. So so those are those are things that I'm currently watching on repeat, as well as obviously Love Island. And how can people keep in touch with what you're up to? Uh, so we, I mean, we're just desperate to announce a couple of things that we are in the very final throes of signing. And if there's any business affairs people from the people that are meant to be sending us <laughs> contracts listening to this, can you please hurry up so we can talk about it? I was hoping to announce it on this podcast, but we will be announcing it both myself, Faraz Osman on the socials and gold underscore Walla across everything as well. Well, great. We'll look forward to hearing all of that. Karen, what have you got for us? before you go I've watched so many absolutely wonderful things lately the name of all of which have escaped me so I'm just going to do a walk of shame and confess that the thing I'm currently watching is I'm catching up on the Great British Sewing Bee because my daughter has just learned to sew so that that's the sad truth <laughs> what a lovely warm way to end the show thanks both thanks guys thank you and if you've enjoyed today's show remember you can become a supporter by joining our patreon that's patreon.com slash media pod that's where to go patreon.com slash media pod and as well as supporting the show uh, you get access to our longer deep dive interviews with all of our guests and this week even more tv reviews from scotty Bryan. so that's patreon.com slash media pod other ways to support the show is to take out our riverside.fm trial uh, that's the software we use to make it and it's a uh, great for recording video and audio with colleagues over the internet if you sign up for a trial do use the code mediapod that's mediapod at riverside.fm and if you have just dropped into this episode and it's the first time you've heard the media podcast why not become a regular subscriber of course you can do that in apple podcasts spotify google podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts just hit the subscribe or follow button to get new episodes every Friday. Uh, my name's Matt Deegan. The producer was Phoebe Adler-Ryan with support from Matt Hill. It was a Rethink Audio production. We'll see you next week. <laughs>